Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, good evening everyone. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm architecture program curator here at the Royal Academy of Arts. And it's a great pleasure to welcome, in, uh, to welcome you uh, this evening here in tonight's debate, which is the last one in our series, Technology is the Answer, but what was the question? And we, we invited like, different professionals and theories to working in the intersection between architecture, design, and technology to um, raise questions about how technology is challenging, transforming, and also contributing to uh, architecture, cities, and societies today. It was actually in October in a different event, part of the Home Sweet Home series, where that Victor Buckley, our moderator tonight, uh, was also moderating, when we were discussing after the talk uh, over a pine that it would be like very, very interesting, like organizing a debate on extraterrestrial living. And here we are today <laughs> uh, with three wonderful like uh, speakers uh, who are exploring these topics and the kind of ethical and technological question that extraterrestrial living will uh, 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 raise for architecture and also for humanity. Uh, Victor is professor of material culture at the UCL. He's uh, the author of An Archaeology of the Immaterial and also the editor of Home Culture. So for that reason, but also because he was like the starting point of, the, uh, of this event, uh, we are inviting him, we invited him to, to be the moderator again tonight. Um, the, as I said, like, yeah, the event will start with three, uh, well, first with a small introduction from, from Victor, followed by three presentations from our three speakers and uh, discussions that will conclude with some time for questions from the floor. Um, after the event, there is also like a drink reception in the adjacent room, so please stay uh, because there is a complimentary drink with it. Um, before handing over to, to Victor, I would like to, to thank our supporters. First, to the Spanish Embassy in London for supporting tonight's events, event, and also to uh, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture for making possible the architecture program at the Royal Academy, and to Turkey Ceramics, uh, which is our 2018 uh, sponsor. And now, without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Victor Buckley. All very, very much for coming out today, especially on such a cold day as we had today, but at least it's not snowing. As Gonzalo mentioned today, um, this uh, series, uh, in a sense, has been addressing the question of essentially um, technology. And if technology is the answer, what exactly is the question? And following on from our discussions from the previous um, series of talks, particularly in relation to the home, um, the question that oftentimes arises is really what is the status of the human? What is our understanding of culture? What is our understanding of nature? Not just simply in relation to architectural forms, but when we start thinking about architectural forms, particularly outside of the context of 1G, of Earth's gravity, then those questions are seriously confounded. What is the relationship between human and nature when nature, in a sense, is, in a sense, um, the most artificial thing one can possibly imagine in an extraterrestrial uh, environment? And how do we sort of think of the relationships between humans and other non-human objects that suddenly become 
that come into a very, very close proximity to one another, that actually one is absolutely necessary for the survival of the other under conditions which are basically unimaginable under the, under the conditions we are mostly uh, familiar with um, on the conditions of Earth, under the conditions of 1G. So technology, and we will hear a number of discussion, uh, presentations in relation to technology, um, obviously is the answer to many of these um, questions. But what are the precise questions? What is the nature of the human? What is the relationship of humankind to nature? How do we understand nature and culture? These are the questions that particularly us in anthropology we are trying to investigate. And this is something that has formed a new research cluster within UCL and anthropology at UCL, and particularly in relation to the newly founded space domain in UCL, where these questions of really, what is humankind? What is the nature of nature? When we start thinking about these relationships outside of Earth, beyond Earth, and in radically different contexts, where the context of our environment is completely called into question. So, without much further ado, I'd like to sort of briefly um, <coughs> mention the speakers that we're going to be hearing from today. They'll be speaking for about 15 minutes each, and after that we'll have a 30-minute discussion amongst the speakers um, here at the dais in the front. And then we'll open up um, the floor to questions from the audience. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, we're going to have plenty to talk about later on, um, especially um, now that we've had such a wonderful sort of scene set up for us. Um, we'll move in closer to the moon, and particularly uh, in relation to Jorge um, Manes Rubio's work um, at the European Space Agency, where he is an artist in residence, I understand, with the Advanced uh, Spatial Concepts Group. Um, at developing plans and concepts for the creation of a moon temple, in a sense. If we're moving away from the question of nature then, and, and putting that under interrogation, then obviously the question of culture and ritual comes into play, particularly under these conditions. So, Manuel. So, it's uh, 1966. Well, uh, while training in a remote moon-like desert near Cinder Lake in Arizona, uh, Apollo 11 astronauts were approached by a local Navajo elder uh, who was curious about what was going on. So the astronauts told him they were preparing, they were training for, a, for an expedition that would eventually land on the surface of the moon. Uh, the man was amazed and slightly taken aback thinking in silence about uh, what the astronauts have just told him. So uh, the man, he said after that, um, you know, uh, he replied to these people, and he said, like, you know, me and my, my, my people, we, we believe that there are sacred spirits living on the moon. And uh, I was wondering if you could deliver a message to them upon landing. So the astronauts said, yeah, sure, what's the message? So the old man uh, had them repeat a message, a sentence in his native tongue over and over again after, until they had memorized it. Uh, what does this mean, the astronauts ask. Uh, I can tell you, it's a secret uh, that we only know, me and my people, and these spirits on the moon. That's what he said, and then he just left. Uh, upon returning to their base, the astronauts uh, found out later and repeated the phrase to him. 
and the interpreter started laughing hilariously. Uh, hysterically, he said, it means don't trust the word these white people are telling you. <laughs> They're here to steal your land. <laughs> Our fascination with the moon dates back to the most ancient civilizations. Uh, here's the moon pyramid in Teotihuacan, Mexico. Uh, the moon is a key element in mythologies of every culture. And that connection with our closest celestial neighbor has always been uh, a mysterious and intriguing and fascinating one. The, the moon is, is a god herself. In 1969, Buzz Aldrin salutes the first American flag on the moon. This event changed everything. We were walking among the gods, right? The idea of planting the American flag was conceived by the Committee for Symbolic Activities for the first lunar landing. Um, maybe you don't know that the committee's initial idea was to plant the United Nations flag. But uh, in the end, they, they, they changed their mind. And the United States was, even if only symbolically, uh, taking possession of the moon. So I wonder, maybe that Navajo man wasn't that wrong after all. Um, this whole issue with the flag was, uh, you know, was against the Outer Space Treaty um, that was signed by the United States, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and several other countries two years ago in, in 1967. Uh, it's a beautiful treaty, but by the way, it's a beautiful document. I recommend you all to, to find it online and read it. Uh, the treaty is still applicable today. And uh, it states very clearly that the moon and other celestial bodies shall always be free of weapons of mass destruction, for example, or that all astronauts are envoys from mankind. Um, we know that, unfortunately, you know, the history of, of human exploration is, is quite a dark one. It's synonymous of aggressive colonization and, and exploitation. So I guess the Outer Space Treaty aims to protect space from, from ourselves. Now, the six flags that were planted on the moon, um, arguably probably the most important ones in, in American history, uh, they were very simple ones. They were manufactured in nylon by a company in New Jersey for $5 a piece. Now, recent images from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter show very clearly that all but one of those six flags are still standing. So they're still there, and for almost 50 years, these flags have been exposed to the, to the moon's environment, very, very extreme environment. No? We're talking extreme temperatures, and, and we're talking intense radiation. So today, these symbols of American achievement are nothing more than just white flags. Uh, so, so think about it. You know, it's almost as if the moon is enforcing the Outer Space Treaty herself. <laughs> And, and he's protecting herself from our political ideas. Now they, they seem so small, right? Uh, this is an important lesson to learn, I, I think, especially today when um, the moon is again our next, our next stop, our next destination in, in space exploration. This time we won't be going there on a, on a camping trip. This, this time we want to go there and, and to stay. When I started working at the Advanced Concepts team at the European Space Agency, um, I was inspired by the Moon Village concept. 
and uh, with the International Space Station being eventually the commission around 2024, and Mars being a far too distant goal for human spaceflight yet. Um, you know, the Moon Village has been proposed as the next step in space exploration. So in my project, Peak of Eternal Light, in my art project, um, I decided to explore a more anthropological approach when addressing the future human presence on the Moon. Um, I was asking myself questions such as, where are the motivations and needs of this future space civilization? Um, what sort of rituals, aesthetics, or cultural artifacts will be created by it? What will art or architecture look like on the Moon? And this is interesting because, for example, um, in our minds, probably fueled by science fiction, we've, we always envisioned a moon base as something bright and, and, and big, technologically advanced, extraordinary, right? But our homes on the moon will be a lot like this, and uh, we'll need to use in situ resources, materials that are easily available on the surface on the moon, of the moon, um, like moon dust, for example. I mean, Irene just uh, explained it and showed it very clearly. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a great place to live, so you have to protect yourself from all these uh, lunar hazards. Um, the fact that lunar architecture will be very close to Adobe architecture is, is simply amazing, because Adobe is among the most primitive building materials that we've used uh, in our planet, and all over the world, Adobe structures are affordable and they're extremely durable. And sometimes they even account from some, for some of the oldest buildings in the world. Like this mosque in Ghana, this is a fine example of 14th century Sudanese architecture that also looks like it's coming straight up from the last Star Wars movie, right? Um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the idea of living on the moon, it might be a bit of a, a utopian idea, but uh, who knows, maybe all this time we were preparing ourselves for living on another planet and we just didn't know yet. Or maybe the moon could be a chance to break free from, from this standardization of architectural models that we're suffering today. Let's take a look at uh, Etienne de Boulet's work for a minute, because this is very, quite interesting. He's the man, uh, he was the man which in, in the middle of the 18th century. He was busy designing buildings that most of the times they made no sense. They, they were too massive, too big, too ambitious, too, too heavy to ever be built. But you know, nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, it changed the way we, we perceive architecture. It actually changed it forever. Uh, I would like to think that Etienne de Boulet would be very excited today to, to find out that with only one-sixth of Earth's gravity, what's impossible to build on Earth could someday be possible to build on the Moon. And, uh, you know, think about that for a minute. And, and now imagine that could be true for architecture, but what if that could be true also for all the elements that conform our society? You know, think about politics or economics or philosophy or international cooperation. You know, the moon could be some sort of tabula rasa. It could be a unique chance to redefine our future civilization. Another interesting building. Uh, this is El Caracol, a unique pre-Columbian structure, um, um, Mayan structure located in Chichen Itza. 
and uh, it served both as a temple and as an observatory. It was carefully aligned with the motions of Venus. Um, this, is, this is interesting because not so long ago we had a deeper connection with the cosmos. We, we had a deeper relationship with nature. And uh, somewhere, sometime along the way, we, we kind of uh, lost that connection. And um, in a way, you know, humans were, were they were just another, uh, another player. We were part of a bigger picture. And uh, somewhere along the way, I don't know where, we lost that connection. We kind of uh, fell in love with ourselves. Um, and we think that science and technology, uh, what we're talking about here today, we think that science and technology are immune to the thrill of, of romance and, and, uh, and the pool of magical thinking. But, you know, I wonder, does it really need to be that way? So my, my role as an artist basically is just to bring that connection back. And it's, it's, as an artist at the, working at the European Space Agency, is to look at the future of space exploration with a more human, a more peaceful, and a more embracing perspective. So when did we start having this need of, of building these special places? Um, you know, it's hard to tell, but look at these megaliths. They, they feature carved priestly dancers uh, and, and foxes and lions. Uh, they're, they're, they're crawling among the pillars, you know. Uh, this is Gobekli Tepe in, in Turkey. And uh, it might be the first human-built uh, holy place built 11,000 years ago. So that's predating Stonehenge by some 6,000 years. And uh, what's interesting for me is what is the definition of a temple today? And, uh, or even better, what could be a definition for the temple of tomorrow? You know, it's a place for gathering, for experience, a place where architecture, people, and belief uh, merge together. For me, it could be a contemporary art experience like this one. You know, why not? If I had to choose one, I would stick with Joseph, Joseph Campbell's uh, definition, timeless definition. A temple is a landscape for the soul. So a year ago, I proposed to the European Space Agency the idea of building the moon temple. This is a temple to celebrate the moon as a universal and mythical idea. And it's a temple to promote a more sustainable, respectful, and why not even spiritual approach to the future colonization of the moon. Because let's just call things by their name. This is the future colonization of the moon. The temple stands on the rim of the Shackleton Crater, which is a gigantic impact crater located right at the south pole of the moon. It has a diameter of 21 kilometers and is more than 4,200 meters deep. Uh, this, is this imposing location is a potential candidate for a future uh, outpost on the moon. And, and why, like we, we saw a few minutes before, because of its unique lighting conditions. So as you can see on this illumination map, while some of its peaks uh, almost receive almost continuous sunlight, its interior, it, which is one of the coldest and darkest places in the solar system, it might have captured water ice, which is key for a self-sustainable lunar settlement. The interior of the temple is lit with three horizontal skylights and uh, it features a lunar liquid mirror telescope that gazes into the most distant objects of the universe. And it also has a forum to be used for cultural and ritual activities. And on the left, you have a secondary oculus that allows seeing planet Earth 
rising above the horizon for about 14 Earth days, while for the next 14 days it completely disappears and encourages a, encouraging a greater feeling of independence and self-sufficiency. So after this, I started wondering what kind of objects we might find on the moon, on this moon temple someday. And instead of looking at the future, I decided to look, to look back. And I wonder why different civilizations, sometimes far away in space and time, they had all the, the, the same need to create very similar objects and very similar rituals. So disciplines like comparative mythology or visual anthropology can help us understand the very basic of, of human needs and understand that in the end, you know, we're not that different from each other. So what place, what best place to, to bring that message, to carry that message than to, than to outer space? For example, how come the complex figure of the shaman emerged almost simultaneously in different corners of the world? And uh, we might think from, from our Western and kind of a cocky attitude, superior perspective, that these things, you know, these objects, these masks, these, these people, they, they are things of the past, of more uh, primitive or, or uncultured civilizations. But uh, these are men and women who profess an unconditional love to nature. Uh, they firmly trust their indigenous beliefs. They respect their ancestors and they aim to live harmoniously with those who surround them. So, I don't know you, but I think our world definitely needs a lot more of that. And uh, our younger generations today are craving that compassion and that spiritual balance. So, after decades of isolation, the inhabitants of the moon village start developing a certain sense of common identity. Since it's been common in, in many civilizations from planet Earth, future inhabitants uh, on the moon started making intricate objects with a special agency, objects whose function transcends physical interaction. They started creating very basic pieces using local resources such as moon dust and golden insulation materials. Uh, this vase tells the story of the supernatural, a tale of immortality. We now know that after the struggling first generations of lunar settlers, the effects of lunar microgravity extended life on human bodies, allowing the moon village inhabitants to live significantly longer than those on planet Earth. So the function of this vessel was most likely to symbolically encapsulate their elixir of life in its precious interior. Due to this, its large size and weight, this neck piece was probably aimed to be worn during very specific occasions. It was passed on through different generations of moon village inhabitants, and it was believed that it could help restore cosmic balance or protect or provide protection to whoever wore it. Here, several layers of uh, aerospace film materials are stretched and placed over what appears to be an irregular surface. And the result is a bursting and, and glowing effect, kind of a reminiscent of a, of a powerful solar eruption. So we can assume that this piece serves as a visual reminder to the Moon Village inhabitants to take shelter from these devastating solar events. And the lack of material goods didn't really stop locals to, to start trading. Instead of creating a completely, uh, instead they created a completely new submerged lunar economy where goods were replaced by human skills. 
lunar citizens would offer their talents that would range from particular technical knowledge from, uh, uh, to dancing or storytelling or even spiritual healing in exchange for a similar future return. So basically, commerce on the moon was based on trust and these mysterious objects were exchanged as a symbolic currency to represent this trust between families and clans. And masks, right? Uh, we talk about masks. Masks have played an important role in many civilizations. Masks were worn for important celebrations and, and transformation rites where the mask kind of uh, confers mystical powers or, or they serve as a gateway to a supernatural dimension. So burial masks were commonly used among moon village inhabitants to kind of uh, honor the deceased and secure the departing souls or the departing spirits with a safe passage to the afterlife. And these were carefully crafted in moon dust featuring the, the faces of the deceased. And they were covered with golden aerospace material ornaments to protect them on their last journey. And these are objects, you know, I, I believe these are objects that are universal to humanity as a whole. They, they are objects that appeal to, to our deepest beliefs and, and that's, that's what we do and that's who we are. I'm just gonna finish with this. I think the moon, unlike Earth, has, has no divisions no boundaries, no nations, and, and words like religion or race mean absolutely nothing out there. Uh, it's a pure and powerful symbol of unity for mankind, as we've seen. Uh, so I wonder, are we really entitled to change that? Uh, the moon might be our best shot to work together uh, internationally towards a common goal in a sustainable and peaceful way, and more importantly, free from, from let's say, political boundaries on, or ideological differences. Uh, the idea of living on the moon might be an interplanetary utopia, but it's quite a beautiful one. And I'm convinced that in this utopian ex experience or exercise, we can break free from many of our limitations uh, here on planet Earth. And uh, as an artist, I'm convinced that art as a universal language is, is a tool, is a force that can bring us together. So yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed. Uh, it's wonderful to see Gobekli Tepe <laughs> invoked here as well. Uh, the next speaker is Rachel Armstrong, who is a professor of uh, experimental architecture at Newcastle University and has worked quite a bit in terms of the development of living architectural forms. And um, we'll hear from her uh, shortly in terms of some of her proposals for um, extraterrestrial um, organic forms that can be grown. Um, in this environment. You know, I love this idea of black sky thinking. It reminds me of Marina Benjamin's line from Rocket Dreams when she says, when we dream of space, we dream of transcendence. We dream of what we might become, like a caterpillar before turning itself into a butterfly. We need to create the conditions for a cultural inflection point. We need to realize that we are evolution becoming self-directed. We need to realize that what it means to be human is to transcend our boundaries. We didn't stay in the caves. We won't stay within the biological straitjacket of our current skin bag. We transcend our boundaries. We use our technological scaffoldings to turn ourselves into something far greater than what we were. Black sky thinking is a call to upgrade ourselves. It means that what it means to be human is to transform and transcend. That's what, I, what really turns me on about this notion of black sky thinking, and that's why I think it's worth celebrating. 
So that was the way um, the first interstellar congress began. Um, and um, the question really is, how do we get from here to there, the idea that there are potentially millions of homes in uh, interplanetary and potentially interstellar space. And I think one of the big things that I want to flag up is I think that we're in incredible, an incredible time right now, making a transition from an industrial era to an ecological era. And space in that context becomes an arena, a stage for the playing out of what it means for us to actually be going um, under a transition of thinking and practice and redefining our relationship with this planet, which will set the standards for the way that we will think about other planets as well. Um, and so, so I think that we've, we're making this, this transition towards the ecological era. And so that rather than thinking of, let's say, the um, ISS as being a single house um, that's been in orbit since the uh, new millennium in, in the sky for a small group of people, we start thinking about the interplanetary system as an ecology. Now, now what does that actually mean? I mean, um, you know, the ideas about ecology on this planet have evolved since Ernst Haeckel um, was defining it as a relationship between animals. Um, over the course of the 20th century, particularly mid-20th century, it became a biogeophysical um, system of exchange. Vladimir Vernadsky, James Lovelock, uh, coming up with the idea of then Gaia and uh, Lynn Margulis, the idea that this was a self-regulating biospherical system that was um, uh, coordinated by the actions of bacteria. And so rather than simply being a story about the human, um, what comes into play are the other non-human agents that not only contribute to our world, but may contribute to the potential settlement of worlds beyond. So really the question about whether humans can colonize other places beyond the terrestrial sphere is not just a question for the human, it's a question for life. And one of my favorite, favorite, favorite texts is written by Michael Mortner, who's a space chemist, um, uh, astrochemist. Um, and he does this incredible study of what kinds of creatures could live on meteorites, um, what kind of molecules are carried um, on the transport system, the natural transport system that goes around the cosmos, uh, the, you know, the, the cosmic bodies that um, are transporting um, ice and organic molecules. I mean, what kind of system might inhabit those, those forms of, of transport? Um, and so he's looking at a, a whole range of bacteria that might um, survive, or microorganisms that could survive under these extreme conditions, the extremophiles. And what he comes up with, I think, is, is one of the most uh, incredible pieces of uh, writing in a scientific book, um, which is a manifesto of life. And what he does in this manifesto is effectively, instead of um, embracing the trees of life that we have um, uh, kind of nurtured since the Kabbalah, um, he makes a horizontal plane of life in which no one creature is above another. And what, he's, what, what his book is about is something called directed panspermia. 
In other words, um, a bit like Hans Moravec does with robots, uh, Mortner says that actually humankind is here to seed interstellar space, the, the interplanetary systems, interstellar space with life. Only when life moves out from our planet in all its forms can then human civilizations follow. So the idea is that deliberate seeding of life beyond the solar system um, into interstellar um, spaces um, becomes part of our mission. Now, I'm not necessarily agreeing with that because there's obviously ethical questions, you know, by seeding, um, uh, you know, nebulae or, um, uh, you know, un, um, un, uninhabited planets with uh, weird life forms, we could be seeding, you know, the seeds of our own doom. But I think the, the, the point is really important. If we can't find bacteria on Mars, uh, we, we, we don't know the microbes that can live on Mars. Um, you know, what is the prospect then that, that, that humans would be the first to colonize that, that planet? So what I'm going to talk about, oh, oops, let's go, is, is assen essentially that the technical challenges we face really are to do with the way that we frame the world. It's to do with our imagination and the way that we've already conceived of nature. Um, the assumptions that we make about what is possible through the conditions that are here on Earth. So that our assumptions about what we need in space is based on a present reality which we've been immersed in um, you know, from, from, from the time that we're born. So notably, beyond the Earth, the infrastructures of life, and I mean the the, um, we, we can't take for granted atmospheres or the, you know, kind of the radiation um, doses. We can't take for granted liquid water. We can't take for granted um, uh, soil in particular. Um, and also the physics and chemistry are, are very different on other planets because they are in, uh, have, have you know, different gravitational forces um, uh, and um, uh, you know, different tectonic plates. The actual geophysical systems are very different to Earth. Um, I think the most incredible thing is that biology is absent um, and that gives us a big clue as to how... Um, how we might be able to think about these spaces um, so that they may become inhabitable. In other words, we need not to think of um, uh, terraforming, in other words, making worlds like, like Earth. We actually need to think of the phenomenon of ecopoiesis. How does a dead planet become lively? F forget it being Earth-like, first of all. How do we actually generate systems um, that become dynamic enough um, in order to support the kinds of uh, material exchange that may be necessary for life forms? Um, and I think very peculiarly, um, we take for granted that the cycles of life and death are intrinsically linked. They're not. If you died on the moon tomorrow, you would not decompose. You would stay as a mummy um, in that space indefinitely. So one of the big things, you know, so Matt Damon's potato on Mars, right? The right bacteria have to be present in order to create the nutrient conditions for a very specific set of uh, physico-chemical exchanges to take place in a particular physiology with a particular biochemistry to make the kinds of biomass that then can um, uh, enter our bodies and keep us alive. 
So there are, there are huge assumptions that we're making about um, seeding biomes um, um, on, um, on different planetary surfaces. Um, and so what I want to do is to start with, um, let's say, some, some kind of basic um, concepts. Um, and we did a, a, a number of different experiments. Uh, we we sent, um, uh, a, sent a small garden called the Hanging Gardens of Medusa up into the stratosphere. Um, uh, and, and we put the hardiest um, uh, vegetables that we could think of, so they were all cacti. Um, and um, up they went into the, um, into the atmosphere. We, we'd actually been inspired by a Japanese group that sent up a fantastic bouquet of flowers. And uh, the, the flowers were just amazing. You know, there were about 50 brilliant Japanese florists made this gorgeous bouquet. They sent it up into the stratosphere. I knew that with our team that we, we would never make something as gorgeous, so we actually went for the ugliest, most revolting, hideous, um, and probably aggressive plants that we could find. So we, we, we sent up a bunch of cacti, um, and they did terribly. They did very well, and, and also the um, epiphytes, the ones that don't need soils. Um, and what happened was that they got caught up in um, one of the, um, the, the streams of air, and they got absolutely shredded. The, the roots sh shredded um, the, the, the plant stems um, and as, they, as they twisted and the balloon burst. It was absolutely um, uh, kind of uh, gutting to see that... Um, uh, that these uh, structures had been shredded so badly. And then, of course, well, we thought, well, if, if cacti are hardy, well, maybe we should go for the hardiest creature of all time, uh, the uh, uh, Madagascar hissing cockroach. Well, there may be, may be there are other forms of cockroach that are um, uh, equally hardy, but these ones are big. Um, and it meant that when we put the GoPro up, we could actually make a small biosphere and just see how, how, cockroaches, how, how cockroaches got on in the stratosphere. Now, we designed it so that there was actually a little heating platform and that, um, you know, so the cockroaches had a bit of food, they had air, um, the, uh, the, the, the flight wasn't a payload. Um, but what happened was that the glue fr fractured underneath the, um, you can see that big, ugly looking uh, <laughs> um, blob of glue on the bottom. Well, round about, um, I think it was about uh, 40,000 feet, um, that glue um, fractured. Um, and the, um, the uh, cockroaches, you know, fell to earth. Um, but there was nothing wrong with them. I mean, so, um, you know, they, there, there they were with their little tracker on. We managed to pick them up. Um, and so the, the moral of that story really is, if you want to get rid of cockroaches, just don't, don't bother sending them up to Mars or space or anything, because they'll come back. Um, <laughs> and, and also, the heating element actually failed. So what you're seeing here are the, are the cockroaches as the, um, the, 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 the lymph in their system, um, or the uh, uh, hemocele, um, starts to freeze. So they're, they're, they're undergoing abnormal movements. It's really shocking to, to watch. But again, they, they thawed out. They've got a very different um, system of, of circulatory system than we do. Um, so again, they, they really are pretty, pretty hard to kill. Um, so essentially what I just want to do is, uh, quickly, as I've, I've only got a few minutes now, um, I'm going to ask, how do we design with met metabolism? Um, and what kind of, um, you know, how do we design a, a soil? So soils are really these incredible hyperbodies that are spread across the surface of the earth that really do that job of linking um, the uh, metabolisms of life and death. Um, and so soils are absolutely critical. Now, just because terrestrial soils are in one particular form doesn't necessarily mean that um, a Martian soil would be in the same form. We have to think about the geophysical and chemical conditions in which these materials exist. And also a few lessons from biosphere too. 
Biosphere 2, about the size of two and a half football pitches, an entirely sealed terrestrial uh, biome in which eight explorers um, were um, uh, inhabiting it for two years. Now, apparently, after about 18 months, the, the, the ecosystem crashed. Only the ants and cockroaches survived. The um, carbon dioxide rose. The, um, they stopped composting, which meant that the soils failed because the composting took up oxygen. Um, and so that even on um, terrestrial conditions, you know, with the biogeophysical systems of Earth, in a sealed biosphere that's as big as two and a half football pitches, we do not know how to keep an ecology alive. That is really worrying. We need more of these kinds of experiments. It was highly scientifically monitored. Um, and um, you, as you can see, there were lots of different kinds of environments, everything from, from deserts to... Um, uh, to, 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 to swampy areas and jungles. Um, so I think we need to keep those, that, that idea that we, we don't know how to build life and we don't know how to build an ecology from scratch. We know how to garden, but we don't know how to build life in the slightest. Um, so um, essentially, I'm running a, a project um, with the uh, European Union, um, the Living Architecture Project, which is essentially thinking about uh, metabolism, not genes, metabolism as the basic unit of design. Um, and um, we're looking at um, uh, the use of microorganisms to try to build um, uh, um, let's call them systems, metabolic systems um, of um, exchange um, that are integrated into very simple structural units. So you can see here that these ones are producing electricity, they can make fresh water from grey water, um, they can also make biomass when we start to couple them to, to different systems. So by using anodes and cathodes we can actually start to manipulate metabolic systems and then incorporate them into structural components. And the outcome of this will be in April um, uh, 2019. And so the idea is actually when we um, create sealed um, ecologies or closed loop ecologies, um, we're actually thinking of the cycles of life and death. We technically do it through notions of anodes and cathodes and where um, different metabolites are, uh, are distributed in time and space. Um, and we also um, have set up experiments on Earth um, to look at um, how we might live in these spaces differently. We're very used to terrestrial bodies. In space, we have military bodies. So we decided to use circus bodies that had a much broader range of movements than, um, we're, than, than, I'm, than I'm certainly familiar with. And so we had um, uh, uh, two performers from um, Circus Accor in Sweden um, look at um, uh, making a transition from the, from the ground uh, through to the water and then up into the air. And on the, um, over here with this, uh, this fish is a medaka fish, which is the only fish uh, or the only vertebrate that's actually managed to successfully um, breed away from the, um, uh, from the Earth's um, uh, as, uh, conditions. Um, and so the medaka fish really were there as, a, as a, almost like uh, the, the, the animals to which um, the, the, the humans were, were trying to uh, mimic. So really, just to come back um, to the idea that actually we are making this transition already on Earth 
from um, industrial to ecological thinking. We don't have all those tool sets. We need um, different kinds of science. We certainly need different kinds of architectures um, in order to prototype and develop um, these uh, infrastructures of life uh, within the spaces that we live and think through metabolism in order to think about how we make um, living spaces dynamic and not assume that they are inert and um, uh, deadly dull, as uh, Irena was uh, um, pointing out right at the beginning of these presentations. So thank you. Indeed. I'd like to invite all the speakers to come to the front and we can have a panel discussion um, regarding some of the, um, well, some of the ideas that have been coming through. And, um, of course, the issues are vast. Um, and obviously, in terms of the number of the presentations that we've seen so far, the very, our very understanding of what constitutes nature, very understanding of what constitutes culture and the human are very much called into question in many, in, in all of the interventions that we've seen today in terms of these discussions. But what I'd like to ask of the group of uh, today uh, is particularly what is the status of nature within your particular investigations so far to date? And following on from that, I would also like to consider, ask you each individually, in terms of your own observations and your own work, what have been some of the subtle signs of this kind of a transformation? Um, Rachel, you mentioned death and decomposition being qu quite important. Um, Jorge, you mentioned about the materiality of the, um, of the flags changing. The American, the American flag simply becomes a white flag. Um, the idea that subtle shifts in terms of our understanding of materials, a sudden a sort of shift in terms of understanding of organization or the self-organization of, of labor, such as in, as, as, as in Arendt's uh, discussion about termite-like uh, 3D printers that function on Mars. So maybe the way of sort of understanding this and uh, getting, getting to grips with this understanding of the new forms of nature, maybe the way we can understand this might be through these small, subtle changes that uh, suggest a great deal in terms of how um, new forms of nature begin to sort of emerge under these different conditions from, say, the moon uh, to, to Mars. So I'd just like to open up that question to the group in terms of new understandings of nature that might emerge. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start if yeah, you want. Right. Um, is, is this going to streak at? Uh, are these are all? Are, are these all off? Are these yeah. all, they're all on. Okay. Oh, they're all on. Okay. okay. Well, yeah. maybe maybe I just shout. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for those questions. I think they're you know it's it's, it's an extremely exciting subject. Um, notions of nature. I mean, I would go to um, let's say someone like Timothy Morton. Um, and looking at um, you know nature and culture as being part of the construct of what we might call nature. So let's say a, a learned and familiar experience of of, of life and environment on Earth. Um, I th obviously, um, there is nothing familiar. I mean, um, Irena was talking about history as being an important part of architecture. I mean, it's also a, a very important part of, of nature if we think about the whole process of evolution um, and notions of succession where, um, let's say, um, uh, um, substances become or, or fabrics become more complex 
um, as they form palimpsests over each other. So if you think about the Earths on the planet, they're actually the bodies of all the creatures that have, have gone before us. You know, life is building upon itself. So the idea that we ectopically place a complex system into a barren environment, I think is, is, is incredibly um, alienating and strange. And notions of nature, for me, coming um, from the work that I've been doing with metabolisms, is really trying to think about the, the microbial story that, that comes with us. We think about, you know, nine out of ten cells in our bodies are microbes, the, the, the human microbiome. Um, they weigh about a kilogram or so because they are, you know, about a hundred times smaller than our, our uh, eukaryotic cells. Um, but actually, if, if humans went to, uh, you know, we talk about human colonization, well, inevitably, we're, we're going to bring the bacteria with us. So this notion of human colonization, I think, has to be expanded. There's at least a bacterial biome there. Um, but then we have to think about the succession that occurs because nature is incredibly situated. Even if we do include cultural and technological aspects of our experience of, 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 um, uh, of, of what we call nature. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a habituation of, of, of our experiences of life. And I would say that nature on the moon will be very different to, to nature on Mars, uh, will be very different to nature in the International Space Station. I understand, actually, they've, they've done a, a bacterial survey there, and it's actually very bacterial poor. Um, but what we do find is when bacteria go up into the International Space Station, they can become incredibly virulent. So I think that the salmonella bacteria becomes four times more virulent because of the drop in pressure. It thinks it's inside a gut. So, you know, having a runny tummy in space is a really, really bad thing. Um, so, but it's, it's these kinds of things that um, I, I guess it's hard to imagine un unless either we've been alive through the entire process of human evolution and seen our, uh, seen our battle with, um, uh, you know, kind of the invisible forces, you know, including the microbes in the world and, 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 and human uh, longevity and well-being. Um, so I, I think it's very difficult to, to, to imagine as a whole, but uh, we will make our natures as, as, as we go along. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> My God, with the head of the architect again, I don't have the answer you want. What I know based on the things we've done is that we definitely have enough understanding what we need to create there to explore, but not to colonize. Because we definitely don't understand enough about nature, not even the beginning of it. And then the two projects you mentioned, the biospheres, you know, the failed ones, which was... Uh, it gives us a lot to think about because we somehow felt a few years back that we know everything. And we can do that. And now we realize more and more how little we know. Um, so it's extremely difficult to colonize. Build something to explore until you get it right. And, and I have the feeling that humans will try to do, would look back and try to build whatever they build down here and try to warm up any planet they go, yeah. hoping that some nature, some something alive will emerge. Um, so there's a lot to learn, no? and I think we're going to fail a lot. 
Actually, I, I wanted to ask you, and sort of because I was first struck by your statement that um, nature comes first, and then humans, and then when we think about Mars and we think about the moons, it's humans first, and then nature. But then, of course, between the Mars, between Mars and the Moon, um, there are very, very distinctive understandings of nature. And you also, uh, in terms of your, in terms of the architectural imagination, the architectural um, precedents that you invoked, more um, oftentimes um, analogs in relation to the natural environment. I was very struck that on Mars, the appropriate analog is that of the termite. Uh, basically, spoken, we're speaking about microbes, we're sort of going up a little bit here, you know, in terms of complexity. Here we're talking about termites um, in this sense. And I was sort of wondering how, between, say, Mars and the Moon, what are the appropriate analogies uh, in terms of natural analogies on Earth that would then be deployed differentially between the Moon and Mars? You always look to the, to, you know, to the natural systems. The termites is, you know, it's, it's, it's something that it has been commonly used, but there are many other systems that we know we can look on, um, natural systems. But again, what we did, we tried to program them. We didn't let them evolve naturally. Yeah. This is our need as human beings to control. And I'm well aware of that. That's why we try to program your brain. Um, we, we don't know enough about natural systems to let them evolve naturally. What we know up to now is how to program a mechanical system to mimic whatever we understand of nature. in terms of the status of nature and, uh, and natural processes, particularly as they begin to sort of impact on our, uh, on our interventions in these extraterrestrial realms. Again, I was very struck by the, uh, the example of the flag that is erased of all of its colonial sort of implications. The American flag is gone. We just simply have the flag of surrender, really, the white flag. Um, yeah. and, and it's not quite accidental. I, I'm curious in terms yeah. of sort of your work, how... I, I didn't know about this, and when I found about it, I was like, wow, this is, this is like, it's too good to be true, but it's, it's what happened, and, uh, and it's something that we, we try to maybe forget or, or ignore, and, uh, you know, I dream of the day when, when you see a picture of an astronaut, it's not really carrying its flag here, you know, on, on the, or on the chest, and, and it might be a bit of a romantic idea, but I really think that we don't, we don't really need to know what country you're from, because when you're on the moon, you know where you come from, you know, and... and <laughs> and it's, it just makes no sense. So, um, you know, this is, this is like a very important issue. And, and um, I don't know, for example, in terms of relationship with, with planet Earth and the systems that we've created here, and is it really necessary to bring them with us wherever we go? Um, a lot of people defend that the first, like, um, uh, human settlement on the moon should be on Ma uh, Mont Malaperte, which is, like, quite close to the Shackleton crater, because from, from top of this mountain you can always see Earth. And they think that for, for the first uh, uh, colonizers or the first astronauts, it's very important to have visual contact with Earth because that's where their beloved people are and, and that's where you belong. But what I like so much about the Shackleton is that you have both sides. You can be connected with Earth, but at some point it will disappear and then you're on your own. And I think that's also important because then you can really break free from all these constraints that we've, that we've built uh, here in, in, in our planet. And, and you know, I think that's a, that's also a very a very positive idea of like 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 what you what you guys said before the, the idea of redefining everything and uh, and I think this this issue is so important that is it's too important to leave it only 
for, for scientists and billionaires, which seems to be the, <laughs> yes. the biggest groups of people working with uh, you know, the, this next age of uh, space exploration. I think we need more humanist voices, and we need, uh, everybody should be involved. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I think. Obviously, when you talk to the European Space Agency about the, what happens with them when an astronaut dies on the moon, they're not very pleased by that question, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But, but you have to think about it, like what, literally, what do you do with this? You put it on a capsule and send it to, to the sun or, or and burns in the sun or you send it back to Earth or you bury it, what sort of ritual? And, and again, when somebody's born on the moon, what's, what's gonna happen? Eventually, it might happen. This, this person that doesn't understand nature, doesn't, has a, or well, maybe he does or she does, but doesn't really has a need to, to walk among the forest like, like we do, so. I think it's very hard for us to, to imagine what's going to happen because the people who will be there might be completely different from us. They might be even different species, as we know. So, Well, actually, fo following on from that observation, <laughs> I want, in terms of the idea of a new sort of kind of homo, maybe, uh, uh, that people speak about homo ares as opposed to homo terrans. Um, humans of Mars as opposed to humans of Earth, and here the possibility of humans um, on of of the Moon in that sense. But I'd like to sort of then sort of take the question back and um, bring it back to the Earth and the relationship of these ventures outwards. And if our understandings of nature and culture are called drastically into question as a result of these endeavors, what do these investigations? What do these questions then say about our very own conditions here on Earth. How, in a sense, does this begin to sort of relate back to questions of, say, sustainability, equality, social justice, etc., as they as they come back to the Earth? How would your <laughs> investigations, in a sense, help um, provide insights in terms of the way that Earth itself becomes reconfigured uh, within these endeavors? Well, I think we're at a, a very interesting time where we are actually. Um, seeing the cusp of reconfiguring our relationship with the planet. So I think that, uh, you know, and, and as I said, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the 80 years or so of systems theory together with um, uh, engagement with ecology, uh, together with uh, the emergence of biotechnologies is actually giving us, um, let's say, a new technological platform through which we can think um, and rethink um, how we imagine the, the way that work is done and the ways that we go about doing that. In other words, we're going to see um, a different platform, um, maybe a complementary platform, and then the machine for conducting work. Um, and there's some really nice um, uh, kind of science fiction um, stories that talk about um, creatures that are extruding technologies from their bodies, maybe through their DNA, maybe <coughs> just as extensions of their, of, of their bodies. But I think that this, this kind of biotechnological kind of systems process flow metabolism platform is going to be um, a way that we can start to test and develop some of these um, uh, new relationships biopolitics, new politics, so the idea of um, the, the kind of uh, thinking and exchange and discourse that happens at a planetary level actually impacting on the way that we treat each other. I think we'll see new forms of diplomacy. Um, I don't think that necessarily means um, perpetual peace. I think we're, what we're looking at is, a, is, is let's say, an, an ideal of Babel rather than utopia where um, uh, differences are negotiated um, and um, boundaries are 
always um, uh, kind of under under construction. So I, I think that when we have uh, the, the kind of the equivalent the, uh, the Enlightenment had, which was a, a machine with um, an inert body and an ephemeral soul or you know, a set of commands or data, um, and really that machine is a way of visualising that whole philosophy and tuning it and, and reshaping it to um, address um, questions of the time. When we have this other platform, which I think is coming through the organic uh, realm, uh, we will be able to ask those same kinds of questions and experiment th iteratively through looking through this particular lens. So I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive necessarily. Um, I think they, can, they give us a broader portfolio for survival. But I think that um, the, the, the kinds of changes that would happen um, um, away from Earth will help us develop those, those ways of... Uh, living better here, I think. I want to put the question to you as well, too, no, no, in yeah. terms of observations. It's a way to answer, because, you know, I, it's, I just want to share what we learned. And our relationship with materials is not the same anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm actually thinking about your own practice. I mean, you're, well, working, you're, working, we, on, you're working on We are really Apple worried thing. about the way we yeah. use materials, especially yeah. the composite materials, when you mix two raw metal with something else into something that it cannot be recycled, mm. unless you totally, you know, ruin its value. That's something that has bothered for many, many years. Unfortunately, the construction industry is full of these materials because they are very performative and they're light, perhaps, and all that, and they're cheap. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's very difficult to do it another way. By exploring these new ways of making your materials using you know, whatever is natural, with some binders that, you know, hopefully they're not chemical, they are organic or whatever, or biodegradable, then you, give, you use the material for as long as you need. The performance is still there. It's lighter. We proved that with our NASA. You know, it's stronger than concrete. No? And it's just basalt from Mars. It's not much you know, sophisticated there. But we managed to make it stronger than concrete. And then once you are done with the use, then it goes back to nature. You know, goes back and becomes basalt for something else. For me, that's an important lesson. And I think uh, we need to do more of that. And also, you know, when you design structures from scratch and you're not constrained by the extrusion of an I-beam, you know, which is a process that was started 100 years ago and we're still using it, you know, when you extrude still I-beams, no, one solution for all, they're not that efficient. And very often you extrude it and then you cut holes because you need to just, you know, get your cables through and your air ventilation systems and all that. And you just throw away 40% of it, no, recycle 40% of it, not really. So for me, that is alarming. Now we have ways that you can 3D print, you can position the material exactly when you need it for the function you need, mm -hmm. no? and it's pure. And you use usually 60% for the same job. So for me, that's fascinating. And that's the lesson that from this exploration you know, in habitats outside of Earth that we're using here. And I don't want to work on a building again that we don't use credit credit on materials. Only pure, as much as we can. Or Mars to Earth. Yeah, <laughs> on Earth, on Earth. It's, it's, it's you know, well, you know, have to just, you know, help here first. Uh, but the lessons are clear. The structures are built. People, our clients, can come in our office and see them. And therefore, you know, once people see something, they believe it. When you talk about it only, then they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But once it's there, you know, it's very difficult to don't believe. And, and how does one ask how, how, in a sense, these investigations in terms of questions of, say, uh, new forms of culture, new forms of social relations, how you might begin to envisage them in places like the moon and elsewhere, how 
do these investigations then go back possibly to inform our own practices here on Earth? Um, you know, I think it's, like space is a very uh, exciting scenario for, for everybody and, uh, and therefore, you know, it's, it's, um, people are very enthusiastic about it and, and for me it's, it's important that we try to redefine several concepts while we're while we're here on Earth, and uh, a lot of people, you know, might come to me and say, "We don't need a temple on the moon," you know, and and that's true. And I'm not here trying to sell you the idea of building a temple on the moon. Or I'm not crowdfunding it or, or whatever. <laughs> uh, but you know, the simple idea that people, uh, you know, they really get pissed, telling me you're bringing religion to the moon. That's wrong. And I say, well, that's because the word temple you instantly associate it. With, with, the, with the idea of religion and the, all these negative connotations and the idea of power and oppression that we associate with religion. But I really think that, especially now younger generations, that the idea of religion means really like not that much for them, but there's a whole new idea of spirituality that we're really trying to engage. And that's why when, when you know, that's why so I'm, I'm so interested in, in, in ideas that maybe they seem that they should be in, 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 in folk museums or ethnographic museums, you know, the whole idea of shamanism. Mm -hmm. and, but I think it's super relevant because we, we try to, we, we are on this high horse of, of our Western idea of culture because everything that surrounds us is, is that way. And we, we say architecture and we, we immediately have an, a building in mind and we wear Western clothes and we, wear, we watch Western movies and, and whatnot. So I think, you know, if we really trying to imagine what's life going to be uh, on the moon or how are we moving into space, I think it's the best chance to really show the, the diversity that is here on this planet. And we appreciate it for what it is because, yes, we are really moving forward and very fast in terms of science and technology, but that doesn't mean that it's the only way to look at things or the only perspective. So uh, that's what I hope to communicate with, with my work and with my project. And it's, it's just really the idea of redefining everything that you have in mind because it's a fresh start. So we, I think we could really use one. So yeah, let's make the best of it. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. And, and also in the spirit of sort of like moving things, um, taking it from the, the dais here, I'd like to open up uh, the floor of the audience uh, to <coughs> pose questions to the speakers. I see a question right there. Hi. It was a great presentation. Um, I have a broad ethical question for both Rachel and Jorge. Um, seeing your timeline of 2100 for interstellar travel, do you think that by that time, bearing in mind that we will have caused irrevocable climate change, do you feel that at that time um, the human species deserves to survive in space? <laughs> and as a supplement to that, do you think if um, an extraterrestrial civilization were to become aware of our presence, whether they would agree either <laughs> that we deserve to survive? Thank you, Rob. <laughs> um, uh, so, so for me, absolutely there are ethical questions about um, uh, all kinds of space travel. I mean, the obvious one is why invest in space travel when we've got big problems here at home? You know, what, what are we doing with, it, with this money? Um, the, the question of the uh, 2100 is actually the, the mission of Icarus Interstellar, 
Um, they propose interstellar flight being possible um, by 2100. That doesn't necessarily mean human colonization. Um, uh, the inter, um, I4IS, the uh, Initiative for Interstellar Studies, is actually developing Project Dragonfly. So they were, um, this is a group that had consulted with Stephen Hawking and um, uh, with the Starshot project. Um, so they're thinking of making a micro starship that is propelled um, by, by laser um, going out deliberately into um, uh, interstellar space. So the, the 2100 uh, 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 time frame is really about the interstellar platform rather than human colonization, number one. But I also think that the, the follow-up to that is we, we, I mean, things like the, um, the, 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 the uh, uh, Space Treaty um, uh, also is taking a precautionary view of life on other planets. Um, the thing is that without bacteria, we can't colonize other planets. So I think that we have to really develop <coughs> regulations that enable um, us to think about taking other life forms into space. We, we, we'll have to do that before we can... Ethically, we can't, we can't expect ourselves to survive before we know that a potato or an oasis can survive under um, extraterrestrial um, uh, conditions. And before interstellar space took place, we would need an established interplanetary um, culture. So that is likely to be hundreds and hundreds of years away. Um, but the idea is that um, if we are going to colonize places like the moon and places like Mars, by thinking into interstellar space, we actually are thinking beyond the very... Um, let's say, day-to-day -day issues of staying alive and thinking strategically long-term as to where exactly in the solar system we might be investing our limited resources in order to make some of these things happen. Um, you had a, you had a, a question about uh, uh, did the human race deserve <laughs> to survive. Um, I think if we can make it through, uh, we will have deserved it some way or other. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's the best of us. Hi, I had a question for Irene, actually. Um, when you were discussing how the internal part of lunar bases and Martian bases would look more aesthetically pleasing with panels covering a lot of the mechanical works that would be necessary, I wondered if that was not somewhat deceitful and if it would be better for humans to evolve into these technoscapes instead of sticking to what is traditionally Earth-like and something that is aesthetically pleasing to Earthlings and what your opinions were on that. I don't think that uh, humans can definitely survive. You know, we're quite, uh, we are creatures of habit. So you can survive in a space that looks like a machine and we've been doing it very well to be honest, you know, like the spaces you work, you know, they're surrounded by machines and computers, you know, you are a small fraction in what's around you, which is usually a machine. So you, you know, you will be perfectly fine around that. But I truly believe that uh, the machines in the future, they will become smaller and smaller. Like the little termites I told you, they don't have to be as big as the ones in the International Space Station, so obvious, but they still do the job. The difference between nature and this machine is that you still have to tell them it's a machine. So, you know, you teach them to do something and they will do it really well. Then they will wait for the next lesson. So, 
So the space that you saw there, it's a vision of, of technology that is a little bit more cow, perhaps more integrated, but it's still there. So it was a bit ironic saying we camouflaged it because I do believe that, you know, if you look at the way that technology has evolved, it doesn't look like computers anymore. You know, they look, uh, they're screens, you can interact with it. What's behind? You know, and very often the very, very thin, a piece of glass is a computer. And, and things are projected on it. Um, so, yeah, I do believe that, you know, you deserve something better than uh, the machine of the International Space Station. And I'm quite confident that, you know, in a few years from now, that space will look like that and still will perform as a machine. Um, but uh, if that's close to nature, no, it's not. No? It's all programmed. And it all has a cycle. So, you know, then we can mimic very well nature. But we cannot truly, you know, design around it. Cathodes and anodes, uh, why not passive? Why, why not spending that energy on the environment itself and let life generate itself? So what we're looking at is something called a microbial fuel cell. So we're looking at bringing together aerobic and anaerobic environments. Um, in other words, again, trying to couple together the processes of life and death. And they're, they're very different sets of metabolic interactions. And what we figure out is how can we harvest various um, outputs of these natural processes... Um, in a technological environment. And so when we set up a membrane that allows, up, allows exchange, we set up effectively a battery. On one side, we've got anaerobic processes. On the other side, we've got aerobic processes. So essentially, the anode and cathode is really um, an environment in which we can integrate these processes artificially. Um, and so what happens at this membrane is that substances build up on one side and they can either be actively or passively pulled across the membrane. And as that happens, we can pull off electrons from the anaerobic um, organisms. And then we use the cathode, which has got clean water, oxygen. We can put different kinds of organisms in there, like algae that can use sunlight and carbon dioxide to make biomass. <laughs> And so we're, we're in the Living Architecture Project, it's, um, uh, it's called a Future Emerging Technology High Risk um, uh, uh, Project, um, uh, due to finish in April 2019. So that's the reason for using that terminology. In other words, we've created an artificial environment in order to make bacteria that don't normally hang out together, um, uh, build biofilms and uh, form exchanges between them artificially. So why not natural? Because in, in, in space, that's not going to happen um, in, in a natural way. Thank you very much for the contribution of all the speakers. I think like showing this kind of interdisciplinarity where everybody has been like bringing their research in like different aspects where we can see like how architecture, art, etc., how that research is done and how that is uh, exhibited. My question maybe is more like for Irene, but when you are doing in 2012 uh, the research about the moon and that kind of uh, constructions, etc., uh, and in, in Foster and Partners you decide to approach to the planet Mars, uh, of course we can see some, at least from outside, we can see some similarities about the kind of structures. You have like inflatable domes or... Obviously, you have different challenges. Uh, what, could, what, what would you say that it was like the change? I mean, firstly, 
why you decide in Foster and Partners, like, okay, we are working on the moon, now we should also work on Mars, and are you contemplating, like, what, what is the main goal there? And also, if any of you, when you have been research, researching, have you contemplated the idea of the terraformation of the planet Mars for any part of your research? Because we like a challenge. And what you realize is that when you don't have constraints, really serious, extreme constraints, you cannot really innovate and think differently. Because here on Earth, you know, we have incremental improvements in the way we do buildings, but our job is relatively easy. The only thing you have to do is just get it right, use as less materials as possible, use the right materials, and connect it to nature. No? And the job is done. When you're there, you know, you have to rethink everything. And, and, and that makes a big difference. To, to, you know, made a big difference to our way of thinking, and we learn a lot. And, um, well, the moon was the first project, and what we learned is to push the boundaries of, of 3D printing, which what it is is use the material efficiently, you know. You can use a robotic arm to deposit it exactly where you need it. So it's bespoke. It's designed for its function, rather than just exclude an I-beam and you use it for many uh, different types of projects. So that, for me, was the first lesson. Then, you know, we used that uh, technique, the depending to do with metals and concrete, and, you know, all the materials we use on Earth, we try to see like, what are the opportunities that open to us once we can 3D print with them. And then, therefore, what we should be designing if we could deposit the material where we want. And that's, you know, so geometry comes for free. So what you should be doing? So the first thing we did was to design the, your insulation and everything. You know, I mean, you, you know, usually you have concrete, and then you have your insulation layer, and you use all these layers of materials. So can I do it all with one? Can I have my structure, which looks quite natural, and then within that, you know, enough, you know, air cavities, the right size, so it acts as insulation, and then it acts as acoustic absorption, all that. Can I do it all with concrete? And the answer is yes. So we try to 3D print concrete walls that you don't need to put any insulation. So it just keeps you warm and it actually absorbs all the sound and all these wonderful things and air can go through and cool itself and all that. So that makes us all quite you know, excited. So that's what we do with these projects. And with Mars, you say, why then, you know, since you cracked it on the moon, why you didn't stop? Well, because we felt that we still, uh, the scale was still architectural, you know what I mean? And we were designing with big robotic arms squeezing concrete, you know, still the scale was quite big. On Mars, we couldn't do that because of the distance, as I explained. So you cannot carry anything on the moon. It's too expensive. On Mars, even worse, you know. So then you have to make sure that uh, you bring something small, but lots of them, so you have enough redundancy. And you give, you made an attempt to, 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 to understand a little bit further nature and how do they really, the termites, you know, design, build their habitats. For that, that's what's different, you know, different uh, set of explorations and, and open us uh, amazing territories that with the moon project were not there, you know, because the scale for me was still too big. Now with that scale, when I can design that little thing, and that thing can, you know, collaborate with its friends and build something bigger, that's exciting. Because then I can work in even smaller scales and, and get closer to what, you know, nature is really doing. Um, so this is why we're doing it. We're learning. I'm afraid at this point we're going to have to um, close the floor to discussion, but open the library up for drinks. And the opportunity to speak maybe more directly to the speakers over a glass of wine in the yeah. library in the next room. Yes. I'd like to thank the speakers again.
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.